This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I can't remember the lyrics to that Nirvana song, and it's really been bugging me. Oh well, whatever, never mind. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and looks both ways before crossing a one-way street. In this episode, we're going to talk about what it means to be learner-centric and how you can adapt your learning methods to your own goals. You'll get insights into the new HSK and other standardized tests, actfuls, can-do statements, and manner companion standards. These are all things you can use right away. Guest interviews with Robin McPherson, a highly enthusiastic polyglot who speaks eight languages and is a YouTuber documenting his language learning. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey guys, I am John Pazden. I am in Shanghai, China. Happy May. Happy May to you, John. All right, we've got some reviews before we kick into our discussion today. Our first review comes from Misha Wilmers. He says, I'm a regular listener of your podcast who has benefited immensely from your Mandarin Companion series. I recently wrote a blog about how I benefit from graded readers, and you can read it here. Best wishes, Misha. Hey, well, thanks so much. And I did take a look through his blog post, and yeah, it was like, wow, the impact that greater readers can have on your Chinese, he's a prime example. Are we going to link to that? Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Okay, thanks, Misha. And next we have a would give 50 stars if I could, five-star review from June Niels in Denmark. And June says, I studied Chinese three decades ago and for a number of reasons didn't continue. John's and Jared's podcast inspired me to finally pick it up again after endlessly saying to myself, oh, I wish I could. I love the show. It's substantive and practical while at the same time being fun and encouraging. There are many episodes I'll go back to for the sheer joy of it and also for the fantastic and interesting guests. I highly recommend The Graded Readers as well. I bought Womanshu Pangyoma, which, although tough at first, because I'd forgotten so much, provided a chance to just buckle down and read and plenty of occasion to slap my own forehead for forgetting what that character meant that I just <laughs> looked up. Great work, guys. So grateful for what you do. Well, thank you. It sounds like uh, you definitely get what we do, and uh, you know this road isn't necessarily easy, but it's very rewarding. Quite so, quite so. Our next review is from Kandra5 here in the United States. She says, very helpful, five stars. So many different ideas on how to make the most out of practice and gives me a big jayo every time. A question I have, is it worthwhile to watch TV with English subtitles? My favorite stories are all fantasy, very difficult because they have all these not useful magical system words. And I found one to watch and I had some aha moments of reading the English and then how they said it in Chinese, but wondering if that's worthwhile or if it's too much of a crutch. Hey, you know, I, all really on this type of stuff, uh, you know, pr- we appreciate the review, Kendra. But, you know, if you're really enjoying it and you're having a good time and it's not a drag for you, yeah, go for it. Yeah, and if you really enjoy it and you want to watch it again and turn off the English subtitles, then you might you might benefit some more. So, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, and I would say if you are getting some out of it, uh, you know, don't don't worry about maybe rewatching the show a couple times. You know, you, 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 with multiple rewatches, you sometimes can get more out of it. Yeah, throw yourself a bone every now and then. Not everything has to be a horrible slog, right? All right, our next review is excellent. It's from Chong One Two Three Four from Thailand, and Chong One Two Three Four says, "I love this podcast." Well, thank you, Chong One Two Three Four. We really appreciate it. Short but sweet. Thank you. All right, and then lastly, we have a question from Michael Cartmill. And Mike says, hey, guys, as always, great job with the podcast and keep up the great work. Still loving each one, repeating them as well. I would consider myself low to mid-intermediate at this point. In my studies, I find I use about three different fonts from different sources as I read and review things. But characters I know and can read in some fonts are just crazy hard to understand in others. The brush font, although knowing the stroke pattern helps, I have to sit and decipher forever. Then the blocky fat fonts are just as bad. Of course, those aren't used in books, but in ads, movies, signs, but it almost feels like I have to relearn them in each font. Is that just the way it is, or do you have any suggestions? Hmm. Well, it, we do have a resident expert in Chinese fonts, and his name is John Pasden. So, hey, John, take it away. 
Uh, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm an expert in fonts, but I do have quite a bit of experience. So first of all, um, if you know anything about fonts, like in English, there's a serif font and a sans serif font. So the serif font is one of the little like, the little like bumps and like the extra little flourishes. Uh, like think Times New Roman in Word or whatever. And then the sans serif font, like the most common one is probably Arial. It's just straight lines, right? Kind of blocky. It's, uh, it works really well if you make it really bold too. So Chinese also has two standard fonts. The serif font, kind of like the Chinese Times New Roman, is called Songti. And it's very standard. It's used in most books, you know, printed books. And then there's the, the uh, sans serif font, which is kind of like Arial in Chinese, and it's called Haiti. And that one is often used for titles. Uh, you see it a lot in ads. You see it a lot online. Um, we, we use it a lot, too. Um, it, it tends to be clearer. And so my advice to you is focus on those two fonts because those are the ones you'll see the most. Do not focus on the um, you know ads and like movie posters and like all that crazy stuff. Uh, Calligraphy just, scripts. Yeah, oh. it's just it's just hard. Um, and the more familiar you are with the characters, then the easier it is to decipher them down the road. So um, you'll you'll definitely have an easier time by sticking with Songti and Haiti, and those are also the ones. Uh, that we use in our books and the ones that you see most places. Words from a man who knows. All right, actually, one more thing, Jared. Before we get started, uh, we have a reader question from uh, from email, and he says, "Love the podcast and enjoyed the latest episode. In the last episode, you mentioned a video of the different Nihao variations. I looked for it online and wasn't able to find it. Could you send me the link?" And it's funny, you know, I looked for it too on YouTube. And I couldn't find it either. And I had, I had to get it from the person that originally gave it to me, uh, you know, one of my, actually one of my Chinese staff. And you, you can imagine, you know, searching for hello on, on YouTube, like it's going to be hard to find yeah, what you want yeah. in a sea of hello. All right. So I'm sorry I forgot the link. I did dig it up and I'm putting it in this show's show notes. It's the Nihao video. I think you'll enjoy it though. Um, sorry you missed it last time. It's worth a quick watch. It's not long. All right, Nihal. All right, John. Let's uh let's get in today's topic. Uh, now, how would you lead us out on that? All right. So today we're going to talk about kind of a mishmash of topics, but it's all related to the idea of being learner centric and what that means. And so I want to kick this off by talking a little bit about the new HSK. Have you heard about the new HSK, Jared? Oh, I've heard about it. There's been a lot of stuff and rumors going around about it online. Yeah, um, recently the uh, the new standard, kind of an outline uh, more focused on vocabulary and grammar, uh, was released by the Chinese Ministry of Education. But uh, what was not released is uh, you know practice tests, a new series of textbooks, um, a plan to actually start implementing this new exam in the actual testing centers. So this new HSK is kind of in limbo right now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think the latest rumor I heard was that they're kicking it down the road. They're, they're going to ha- wait another three, four years to actually implement it. So we'll see what's right. But I think what we're finding out, right, is there's not a lot of official communication on this. Right. So there's actually a lot of politics behind the HSK, and I'm not an expert on that. But I think that might be part of the reason. Uh, if you go to ChineseTest.cn, that's the official website to register for the HSK, and there is no mention of the new HSK. So I think that does back up uh, the reports that the new HSK will not be offered this year, possibly not next year. So I wouldn't worry about it too much, although it is interesting to look at the, the new vocabulary lists and the grammar lists, and we're definitely looking at those already. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that you know the current HSK 1 and 2 standards, those are definitely not going to be the same. I, well, I've seen some of the people kind of equating what they're anticipating the HSK, the new HSK one is going to relate more closely to like the current HSK three. So stuff like that. So they're kind of like upping up the, the up in the game, so to speak. It's kind of like making it more similar to the old HSK. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, what is, <laughs> what is old becomes new again. But um, the other thing is that there's this series of uh, textbooks for the HSK called the HSK Standard Course. And only in the past couple years did the whole you know Chinese learning industry standardize on this new textbook course, which is pretty standard, this series of textbooks. And now there's a new HSK coming. But it looks like this textbook series is still going to be useful for a couple years. 
and I would maybe guess that they're still working on this on the new version of the same textbook series to to make it you know match the new standard. So what does this all have to do with being learner centric? Okay, good question. So um, people have asked us before. Oh, so you write graded readers, so they have different levels. So you must use the HSK, right? And the answer mm. is no. Mm-mm. We do not use the HSK. Mm. And um, the HSK is what's called a standardized test. It is not uh, learner-centric. Uh, the reason for that is that you know a, a test kind of serves the purposes of a school. They want everything to be standard. They want to know where everyone stands against the specific set of criteria, right? Uh, whereas learner-centric is much more about addressing what the learner needs and what the learner wants. And that can vary a lot from country to country, city to city, uh, decade to decade. So um, specifically with the Manor Companion graded readers, uh, when we developed this standard, we knew we weren't helping people with test prep. We knew we weren't helping people uh, directly to read newspapers. What we wanted to help people do is at a low, is at as low a level as possible, let people read an interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. And that's frankly, it's been really difficult to find good materials that are at that level for Chinese learners. And I like I like how we're saying this. And I think anyone listening here is like, keep in mind that we wrote these stories with that in mind, allowing you to be able to read interesting stories in Chinese. But we also know that there's a host of other benefits that are going to come along with it. So yeah, it's going to help you with test prep. Yeah, it's going to help you through fluency, a lot of things. But you have to, it's like the, the focus is uh, really important when you're getting into producing these things. Yeah, so that said, although we were focusing on telling a story and uh, you know letting people enjoy reading Chinese, we then did take our graded readers and then compare it to the HSK levels. Um, so that was a was kind of a later step that we took because we want to help people who also need to take the HSK. It's useful to have that as a reference, but uh, we want to focus on the, the learner's needs and keeping the books interesting. So uh, we can now take our existing level and compare it to the new HSK standard uh, when the time is right to publish that as part of the books uh, because our, our levels aren't based on the HSK. It's based on the needs of the learners for, for reading stories. And because I do tell this to teachers all the time, they ask this. They ask to say, well, what is that overlap between the HSK and your books? And so anyone listening, I'll let you know. Our level one has about 95% overlap with the HSK-3. And we have about 96% overlap with like integrated Chinese. It's a real popular textbook out there. So that's a good thing, at least about the levels that we have with the books, is that they actually overlap very well with existing you know, leveling systems, although they're not written for those leveling systems. Yeah, so what that doesn't mean, I think it's easy to misinterpret this, what that doesn't mean is that I need to pass the HSK-3 to read a Mannering Companion graded reader. Uh, at level one, uh, no, because if you pass HSK three, you're also learning a bunch of words that the HSK wants you to learn that you actually don't need to read and enjoy a story, but it's still useful to know the overlap, right? Absolutely. So one of the things I also like about when we're talking about learner centric, you know, methods and everything, I, and we're getting into like a really extensive reading is probably one of the most learner-centric methods out there. Now, I'm going to equate to give you guys some also ideas of some other learner-centric uh, models and platforms and things out there. Uh, if you guys have ever seen like Khan Academy, all right, Khan Academy is actually a pretty good example and how it can be utilized as something that's learner-centric. Like their math programs are really good. You know, you have a classroom, you have kids that are all over the different levels of math. They can go in and they can take the, the class, they take the actual lesson that they're at and they can all progress at their own levels. The same thing kind of happens with extensive reading. And I've worked with this, I've worked on this with a lot of teachers before is that, you know, they've got students at different levels and they're all kind of moving at their own pace. And you, it's really easy like for people to find a book that's at their level and they can start in groups and move to independent reading and stuff like that. And it's really powerful uh, because, you know, you are moving at your own pace and you are reading at your own level. And then you kind of meet back together for discussion and different topics that are based on the story that you're reading. 
It's pretty fantastic, and it's a pretty well-documented thing worldwide, and it's actually, you know, John, as you know, a lot of the extensive reading research is coming out of Japan. That's where most of the research is, is going on regarding this. And and it's it's exciting to see this and to see how that impact of something so learner-centric can have on language development. Yeah, so it, it kind of seems like what we're saying here is a little contradictory. Like I just said that, oh, HSK is standardized testing. That's not learner-centric. Well, it's not because it has a it has a very fixed list of vocabulary, list of grammar points. Um, it has it has academic fo- focused passages, um, and it doesn't really take into account the learner's interests, the the learner's needs, uh, what the learner actually wants to do with with the language. But that's not to say that a good Chinese language program can't do some of that. So that's what Jared's talking about. And if if for example your Chinese language program lets you choose a graded reader or at least some material to read then then that's already like making good progress towards being more learner centric you know another aspect on this too that i I continue to think about and we're this is a little bit on the standardized test thing john but i definitely think it comes back to being that being learner centric is uh, there's kind of a there's a the another test that we have here in the united states that's for high school students doing chinese and it's called the ap chinese exam and Mm. Uh, you know, one of the most common things when I've talked to teachers or the educators or students who are preparing for this test are like, where's the word list? Like, because, I mean, HSK, there, there's a word list, character list. You know, you're supposed to know these characters going into that test. There is no word list. There is no character list. How can the, that be? <laughs> I know. It's like, we're like, what? What's it? Because it's more qualitative. It's a qualitative test. It's not It's not a more of a quantitative test like the HSK. You know, HSK is more like how many words you know, all the grammar points you use. And, of course, there's going to be that qualitative aspect if you need to write some things. But it's much more heavily focused on your knowledge of the language. Whereas the AP, the AP Chinese exam, it's, it's heavily focused on writing and comprehension. And there's an oral part. And it's about your ability to communicate an idea in Chinese. And it's pretty cool. And then we, we talked before about, like, actful and how they're more focused on uh, communication and speaking proficiency. And I mentioned before the can-do statements, and I've had a bit of interest from readers and other learners about that. So I want to just mention, too, how that's relevant. Because these can-do statements, they kind of describe what a learner needs to be able to do at different levels without uh, explicitly prescribing, like, these are the words that you must learn to do it. These are the grammar points that you have to know. So um, that's one way that schools are getting better at being more flexible. Of course, schools have to decide what, what learners need, but they can be a bit more flexible about it. So I, I just wanted to read something a little uh, from the uh, Actful website about the can-do statements uh, to just kind of mm, illustrate this. Yeah. I won't read too much. Sorry, I hope I'm not getting too academic on you here. <laughs> so one, one statement is, the sets of examples of can-do statements are not a prescribed curriculum. The can-do statements include examples of communicative performance to adapt or modify for local curricula. They are not intended to provide ready-made lessons. All right, so there's some of that. So translate that for us, John. Okay, so there's some of that that flexibility. Just saying that the can-do statements doesn't mean you have to cover everything, and it doesn't tell you how you have to cover it, but it gives you some guidelines. So the can-do statements are a starting point for self-assessment, goal setting, and the creation of rubrics for performance-based grading. And what, what I want to mention here is like, if you're a learner out there and you're kind of learning on your own, maybe you're hiring some tutors and you're kind of just trying to figure stuff out on your own, this is where this can be useful because it's a starting point for self-assessment and goal setting. You know, we've talked a lot about goal setting and you might wonder like, what do I need to work on with my Chinese? Like, what can I even do now and what can't I do now? And this can help you figure that out. Absolutely. And it is. It's like setting smaller goals. There's different tiers of goals, so to speak. And you can, and you can really think about why do you want to learn Chinese? You know, I, I think that is one of the underlying questions is like, you know, why are you really learning the language? And if you have that reason, then you can create some things that you want to do, right, with the language that's in relation to your goal. Say, I want to, some people say, I want to read manga comics, you know, uh, you know, or I want to watch a TV show, or I want to be able to talk to that uh, cute girl at the restaurant, or whatever it is, you know, you can get out there and you can start learning, figuring out some can-dos along the way that's going to help you get towards to where you want to be. 
Yeah, let me just give an example of how the can-dos are kind of like uh, tiered and uh, and also not set in stone. They're flexible. So this is from the, um, the novice can-do statements. And the question is, how can I meet my needs or address situations in conversations? So for novice low, hmm. I can express some basic needs using practiced or memorized words and phrases with the help of gestures or visuals. So you can even mime it. So like really you basically need to like <laughs> throw out one or two intelligible words, throw in some good miming and you have accomplished novice low uh, partially. <laughs> I did that my first trip to Beijing, John. We were at some restaurant, nobody spoke Chinese. I think I want to learn how to say yao, you know, want. And I was, and we were like, we were like doing like a clucking like a chicken, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and the the waitress said, "Oh, chicken!" And so she kind of pointed some chicken dishes, and we didn't know what we were picking out, and we we're like, "Sure, this one." <laughs> but hey, you know, it worked. Sounds like you were you were well on your way to novice low. You know, you learn a few more, <laughs> learn a few more words from a phrase book, and you're getting there. But but then it continues right. into into a novice mid. So then it says, "I can express basic needs related to familiar and everyday activities." using a mixture of practiced or memorized words, phrases, simple sentences, and questions. So they're throwing in questions here, which is important, but also being able to piece together actual sentences, you know, which goes a little bit beyond uh, chicken role play. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Where's the bathroom, you know? <laughs> yeah, where is, and then plug in word, right? Like that would be an example right. of, um, of a can-do for this, this novice mid. And maybe you can't understand the reply, but you see where they're pointing and you know, you're making progress. All yeah. right, one more. Uh, so this is novice high for the same question. I can interact with others to meet my basic needs related to routine everyday activities using simple sentences and questions most of the time. So at this point you're getting kind of like functionally competent. Like you can do most of the stuff you need to do with simple sentences, simple questions and basic vocabulary. Yeah. And you know, I, when you get there, it's it's pretty nice, right? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Now, I, I find this I find this so much more encouraging just reading these uh, these descriptions and then imagining what that actually means than looking at like a massive HSK one new vocabulary list. Um, I, I don't find that very encouraging. <laughs> so yeah, think about this. If you are studying Chinese right now, think about those can-do statements. And what's going to be important to you? And this is something like this is learner centric, okay? And let's let's take it more personal. This is you centric, right? So what can dos are most important to you? What can dos are going to help you reach your personal goals? Which can dos are going to meet that reason you've even started learning Chinese? So you know, get into there. Go check some of these out. And now when you decide, hey, I, I want to study something, I mean, you may not even need a textbook. You can you can have a very clear idea about what you want to work on with a tutor or in a class or however you're studying Chinese. Yeah, so it does help if you're using can-dos to get the help of, of a teacher because, you know, you might be like, oh, I want to work on this, and then you look up a word in a dictionary, but it's not actually the word people usually use. So, you know, it's always helpful as a beginner to have a teacher. But the can-dos can provide a lot of really important guidance that the teacher might need if you don't want to just focus on the HSK. So ultimately, at the end of the day, this it's a little bit of a different twist you know, on traditional education. And that traditional education is more of like you're fitting yourself into a box, where this is the learner-centric. It's more free-form. You go where you want to go. And especially, I mean, if you are learning Chinese because you have those goals or you have that reason, let that be your guiding star. You don't need to try to fit yourself into a course. Now, it may be helpful because of the discipline or the schedule or things like that. But at the end of the day, you are going to use Chinese in the way that you choose to. All right. And it's not going to be very often you're going to be forced to use Chinese in very specific ways unless you're in some unique situations. So, yeah, I, I would say being learner-centric and, and can-do is a great framework to approach that. And I should mention that the can-do statements also include things like uh, reading. So if you're trying to work towards being able to read, then they're also relevant. So um, we, we support can-do 
this podcast mm-hmm. is You Can Learn Chinese. So um, we you- hope that this helps a lot of you out there. And uh, point your teachers to it if you think it might help them. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. Today our sponsor is... Mandarin Companion, specifically. Sherlock Holmes in the case of the curly-haired company. All right, so this is a level one, 300-character mystery in Chinese where the story of Sherlock and the Red-Headed League is adapted to 1920s Shanghai. This is a very enjoyable take on Sherlock. I love this story because when we adapted this one to China, it was originally the Red-Headed League where there's a league of people are in it and they can only be, you have to be red-headed to be in the league. But of course, there are no redheads in China, but there are people with curly hair. And they're just as uncommon in China as they would be in our Western countries. So uh, you can go out there and get it today. Sherlock Holmes in the case of the Curly Haired Company. It's, you can find it on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books. Enjoy it. Level one, Mandarin Companion Graded Reader. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. It is related to one of our uh, our our reader questions, or sorry, listener questions. So it's called Subtitle Hero, and I'll put the link, uh, but it's just subtitlehero.com. And so the whole point of this uh, this website, this product, is so many Chinese movies and TV shows, maybe you can get your hands on them, and you're like, oh, I can watch a real Chinese TV show, a real Chinese movie, but then you discover that the subtitles are burned onto the video, and there's no way to get at that text. Uh, like if you could just download a an SRT subtitle file, that's great. You could you know plug it into your dictionary, or whatever. But if the subtitles are burned onto the video, there's no way to get them out, right? Wrong, Jared. Wrong. You can use really? something like Subtitle Hero to yeah, it actually uses a OCR text recognition to to uh, extract the text from the subtitles in the movie. It's somewhat processor intensive, but it's pretty cool. It's it's uh, it works quite well. Wow, well, pretty cool. And where can we find that? Subtitlehero.com. And shout out to Kevin. He's he's the developer, and he's a former Allset Learning client. But this is a truly impressive uh, product, so uh, check it out. All right, awesome. Well, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. All right, Jared, what do you got, rant or rave? I don't know. I don't know what to call this, John. But I ran across this as it was something really interesting about a point of history. <laughs> I'm actually doing some research for one of our upcoming new books. And I came across this and I had heard something about it, but I thought it was a fascinating point of history. And it was really relating, it's the Shanghai Russians. Now the Shanghai Russians were a group of people were ah, from Russia back in about 1920s, 1930s Shanghai. And what was really interesting is during this time, it was, you could say it was more of a colonial you know, period of where uh, you know Shanghai and China was being, uh, you know, I guess, overshadowed and ruled by many, uh, you know, Western powers. But the Shanghai Russians, it's just a really sad plight. They were like uh, in China working because of trade between Russia and China. And then when the this, this civil Bolshevik revolution happened in Russia, they kind of got exiled and they became like a people without a country in Shanghai. And they were kind of like stuck there and they couldn't leave. And what was really sad is they had like, unfortunately during those times, you know, the whites had a lot more privilege and power and the, the Chinese, uh, you know, didn't. Uh, and the Russians were like caught in between. So it was kind of an interesting chapter of history. Uh, I thought it was, there's a lot of tangent stories about these people. And, and after the Second World War, they were kind of shoved out uh, by the communists you know, when they took rule. And um, But I think it's a pretty interesting. So there's there's some interesting books, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you ever want to learn about the an interesting point of history about there's different groups that, you know, foreigners that have been in and out of China, Shanghai Russians, I think was a really interesting story. All right. So I say rant or rave, you say Russians. Jared's got to do Jared. <laughs> Rant, rave, or Russians? Today it's Russians. <laughs> All right, so speaking of Russians, who's our next uh, interview? He's not Russian. Oh. But let's cut right to it. 
My name is Robin McPherson. I'm a online creator in the language learning space, primarily creator of videos. Robin is a wonderful person with whom I have the distinct privilege of creating a series of videos regarding developing fluency through reading. We'll leave a link in the show notes. But I'm also a software developer and I've built a platform called Journaly for writing in foreign languages. Robin is a down-to-earth and exceptional individual with infectious enthusiasm. While he has a competent degree of proficiency in eight languages, it's not something he tries to show off. I think you're going to like this interview. I sure did. Stay with us. So, Robin, why did you start learning Chinese? I guess an important part of my history that is relevant is that I was learning Japanese for a long time. And then I actually went to live in Japan. I worked as an interpreter there. I did university there. I was a barista there. And I absolutely love Chinese characters. So in, the, in, <laughs> in Japanese, that's kanji. And then I think just naturally through studying different languages over the years, Chinese was always in my peripheral. I'd never learned, uh, I guess let's call it a tonal language or a, a language that where tones were as prominent and important as in Mandarin Chinese. And so, yeah, over the years, I always knew, I think, that one day I'd really like to challenge myself with Mandarin, but I really do need a good, solid set of intrinsic reasons to learn a language. I can't just learn a language because it you know, sounds kind of cool. It wasn't until I moved to San Francisco and all of a sudden I was just surrounded by, for example, an absolutely spectacular Chinatown I would walk through every day to go to work, surrounded by just so many young professionals who were Mandarin speakers at my job, and then surrounded by opportunities to speak it. And that was finally the moment where I said, okay, you know what? I love documenting my own personal journeys through languages on my YouTube channel. And so I always wanted to document the process of learning a language from scratch up to fluency. And so it was just the perfect timing. And that's what I did. Well, I mean, I, I, got, I got to hear a little more about this because, I mean, you took the time to learn Japanese, but mm -hmm. it's arguably that Japanese is more difficult to learn than Chinese. I imagine you had an idea of what you're up against. In university, I took Japanese classes. But of course, there was the Japanese department and the Chinese department. And everybody was always talking about, oh, Japanese is so much harder. And then the Chinese students say, oh, Chinese is so much harder. And over the years, I was always aware of these differences, right? What were some of those key differences that you found in learning Chinese versus Japanese? Now, it sounds like the setting was very different. Like Japan, you're more immersed. You're mm -hmm. in that environment. San Francisco, not so much, although there are access to more native speakers there. How was that different for you? Well, the funny thing is the whole theme of the series that I'm still doing actually on YouTube, it originally was called Robin Learns Chinese While Busy. Because the whole point was that <laughs> I realized, okay, myself included, lots of people make content about learning languages online. That's what they're living and breathing, right? I think most people that I certainly reach around the world, like they are learning languages in the context of a very busy life. Some of them kids, mm -hmm. jobs. It, it's just like most people are not learning languages nine hours a day, which is how I learned Japanese. That's so true. I always say that, you know, the fraction of people who actually get to have the opportunity to go to China and learn Chinese, it, it's mm -hmm. very small, right? Exactly. I used to find it exciting to be able to say how fast I learned Japanese or this. And... It just occurred to me years ago, that's not that helpful to anybody else. So I wanted to learn Mandarin Chinese, but I wanted to document it and say, like, you can do it. You can learn Mandarin Chinese and you can do it with a full time job and with other projects and other responsibilities. And even if some days 30 minutes is going to be ambitious, other days, maybe more. But the point is, you can do it. And so, yeah, the context has been very different with Mandarin Chinese. And some days it really literally has been incredibly hard to make 30 minutes. I've stuck with it. And there are days now where I do it for hours and hours. It just depends. But that's been a big difference for me is Japanese. I was all in. I wanted to arrive in Japan as fluent as I possibly could be. And there were a lot of interesting reasons behind that. You know, I was seeing a lot of people come back from studying abroad and they were very disappointed because they had not been able to break through. They hadn't been able to make friends in Japan. They hadn't really been able to practice and they had all the very similar stories, all the same complaints. And my conclusion at the time was, 
it must be the language barrier. And then later I also thought about the cultural literacy component. So my goal was I want to be as fluent as I can be. I want to have the best possible chance on my first day. Well, how did that work out for you? It worked incredibly well. It was, it wow, was honestly, really? my experience in Japan, it really was very, very special. And I, just based on anecdotal evidence over the last 10 years or more, I think it was a fairly rare experience as a mm. Western person. When I was in Fukuoka, I was so accepted by people there. It was incredible. Like I was making friends wow. everywhere I went. People were just so kind, so interested. I got invited to live with a Japanese couple, which is wow. Like, you often don't even get invited to go to their home, like for dinner, let alone to live with them. It mm -hmm. was just such a wonderful experience. I'm not sure I've ever felt as loved as I did when I was in Fukuoka, Japan. It was incredible. There's no question that was due to the language skills. Wow, that sounds really special and definitely unique. Yeah, I haven't heard a story like that. Hey, come live with us. What? Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And even things like, you know, again, it's pretty common in Japan to go and teach English or something, right? And I could have done that. And frankly that would have been more advantageous. But I went and worked as a barista. And you don't see a lot of Western people working in the Japanese service <laughs> industry because yeah. there are things like what's called keigo, which is honorific speech. It's not like, you know, formal versus informal. It's an entirely different level where the grammar changes, the vocabulary changes. Even Japanese people get anxiety about the first times they really have to start using keigo in their lives. There are books for like, so it's it's a big deal. And that was one of the really? coolest, but also hardest things I've done in my life was working mm. as a barista in Japan. <laughs> so yeah, through and through, it was a fascinating experience. And I was kind of hooked after that. And so since then, I've learned a lot of other languages. And what are those? So I learned French after that. There's Spanish, Italian, German, Portuguese, Swedish, and then now Mandarin Chinese. I've dabbled Just in a some few. others. Just a Just few. Just a few, right? yeah. So that's another huge difference with Mandarin Chinese is that I'm now not just learning Mandarin Chinese. I also have the job. I have all these other things, but I'm also maintaining eight other foreign languages that are really important to me, and that changes everything. So tell me a little bit about this, right? Because I, I know most people who are listening to this podcast, and they'll speak their native language, but now they're learning Chinese. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what is that like for you? Have any of those rules or any of these things you've experienced in learning other languages, have that translated over and made it a little easier for you to learn Chinese? Learning Mandarin has been very challenging for me. You know, there are things where, especially relative to other European languages I've learned, even if the grammar is supposedly, you know, quite similar to English in certain ways, there's just no question for me. Sometimes it just takes a really long time. And there are certain constructions that it seems like, I'm not sure I'm going to get this. Now, that's where it's so helpful having that experience because I know that I will eventually. And I have even just very simple strategies for dealing with that. Even just things like, in my case, I just recently had an experience where I went back to the basics. And I mean, first Mandarin textbook, chapter one, I went all the way back. And I do this often. And it was so cool because I distinctly remember some of these things being so hard the first time through or even the second time. And now they were so easy. It was indescribably simple. And that's such a wonderful reminder that anytime, you know, something like right now, I'm, I'm trying to really finally truly wrap my head around like the sort of bar construction. I think that one's mm -hmm. a pretty challenging one for bah. English speakers. Yeah. So sometimes now I'm like, oh, I just can't quite feel truly comfortable with it. But I know it's the same way. I know that in three months or five months, whatever it's going to be, that will probably be easy too. It just works that way. But if I didn't have that past experience and if I didn't have some of those tools like knowing how to kind of go back and mix in reviewing the basics with pushing forward, I might have doubted myself. Whereas now I understand it's just part of the process, I think. Well, what's been one of the hardest things about learning Chinese? Honestly, it was very similar to Japanese. It's really assimilating the grammatical fabric of the language into my brain to where I feel comfortable navigating it and like wielding it like a sword, right? With Japanese too, it took a very, very long time for me to just feel comfortable spontaneously creating sentences. And that's been the same with Mandarin Chinese where it just really 
took me quite a long time to just feel comfortable knowing the correct way to construct the sentence, how to do it naturally. And it's just sort of intangible thing. One yeah. day it just starts to come together, starts to feel comfortable. In Chinese, I guess we call it the yugan, the language feel. That's always what we talk about, you know, in extensive reading, you know, it gives mm-hmm. you that exposure to the language. You don't teach grammar. It just kind of start to feel it because you get enough exposure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then some other interesting things about Mandarin that were different than Japanese that I both appreciate, but if I'm honest, at the time I kind of missed it. In Japanese, when it comes to Chinese characters, there's one way. It's mm-hmm. kanji. There's not this idea of sort of traditional or simplified. It's just a standardized thing. Whereas if Mandarin, my first instinct was like learning simplified. And then it was actually really funny because I was so familiar with the Chinese characters we use in Japanese, which are much closer to traditional. Oftentimes exactly the same. Occasionally there are a few extra strokes in traditional characters. But so simplified for me was quite bizarre at the time. (laughs) And this might not be an issue for most people, but I went months just trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to learn with Mandarin Chinese. What style did I want to learn? Was I more interested in the Beijing accent? Did I want to, you know, go for like the Taiwanese style of Mandarin? Or did did that matter? Simplified or traditional? Like there were all these choices I felt like I had to make that with Japanese, for example, they were just made for me. And there's not like a clear answer for everyone. I'm not sure if you had that experience or if you've... Well, I I was living in Shanghai. So, I mean, it was just... You know, you learn yeah. to speak what everyone's speaking around you. I will mm-hmm. say that when I started learning Chinese, there were certain times I did pick up like a Shanghainese accent in certain mm-hmm. words. That's how I heard people say things. <laughs> and I found out later, yeah. like, oh, that's not actually standard, you know? All the textbooks seem to, you know, do the sort of Beijing, like the char or like idiar, the er thing, right? It seems like almost universal, like all the textbooks, all the apps, all the things I found in the beginning all taught that way. But then when I was meeting people in San Francisco, for example, almost nobody actually spoke that way that I was meeting. And then so there was a discrepancy there where people were like, well, if you want to talk like us. And so once again, it was like, maybe it didn't matter, but I felt like I had all these little choices to make Mm -hmm. to tailor my Chinese path. And that was like an interesting, challenging part that I hadn't really experienced with other languages. I think that underscores how diverse China really is. A lot of people will think of China, you know, as 1.4 million people in this, you know, monolithic country. And mm-hmm. no, very yeah. diverse. I mean, yeah. It's I, incredible. I, it, it really is. And I've never know. been. I've never been to a primarily Chinese-speaking country. And funny or interesting thing about my Chinese learning journey is I've still had extremely few conversations. And I documented my very first Chinese conversation on my channel with Jake Gill, who I know you've had on this podcast. With Scritter. Plug yeah. For Scritter. And yeah. so <laughs> I've been doing a very input intensive, but not even just input intensive. So I've done the Mandarin Companion Graded Readers. I've done lots of listening. I do output, but it's all been by myself. And that's partly been due to circumstances where I just actually ended up in the end not having that many opportunities to speak unless I really went out of my way. And I tend to not be as aggressive with that. You know, if I have a Chinese speaking friend, I won't necessarily just immediately start inflicting my <laughs> my Chinese on them. And especially in the earlier stages where I don't have a lot I can say yet, I just take my time doing it by myself. I practice. And then once I really start to feel like I have more I can say, then I kind of come out. But in this case, we've had a very interesting time in the world, obviously. So it's a combination of that and then me wanting to document these things. So I've pretty much only had one live proper conversation in Mandarin and I'm about to start having my second and third and fourth. And I'm going to document those on my channel as well. But that's a certain style of learning I have where I like to show that, yeah, if you have opportunities to speak, that's great. Take it if you want to. But I guess the point I always try to make is that it's okay if you don't have those opportunities right now, you can still develop your speaking skills to a, like a pretty remarkable place if you know how to do it and if you have the right tools. And that's what I've been doing with Mandarin. So now it's kind of time to prove that it works. 
I'm assuming you did this to a degree with Japanese because you said, hey, I want to get like to a fluent level. Fluency, fluent, I call that the F word, you know, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) what does it really mean, right? But you wanted to get to a degree of fluency before you went to Japan. And so it seems to me like you're trying to do that same thing with Mandarin. Is that right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, to give you an idea with Japanese, my first day in Japan, I was working as an interpreter for an American family who needed me in Japan. So day one, my first day in Japan, I was organizing phone contracts. I was organizing rental agreements. It it was crazy. It was hard. (laughs) But that's the level I got to before even setting foot in Japan. So a a little bit, yeah. But same thing with German. I just recently did something where, same thing. I took my German skills. I wasn't practicing with anybody. And I made videos saying how I can develop my speaking skills by myself if I need to. People were skeptical. And then I had a video where I spoke all in German by myself. And I was so happy. It wasn't perfect. It was full of mistakes. But I expressed myself fluidly. And a lot of people said, okay, but once you talk to a native speaker, that's going to be different. It's going to fall apart. I think within two weeks, I was on the Easy German YouTube channel doing a live interview in German. And that was like my first German conversation with a human in years. (laughs) And so it's just to say that you really can do it. I'm not saying that's like the most fun way, but it's just that, yeah, lots of people, they don't necessarily have either the opportunities in their daily life or maybe the financial resources to pay somebody to just sit and talk to them for an hour, three times a week or even once a week. I do love encouraging and showing there's a lot you can do by yourself with tools like Graded Readers and podcasts and all these different things. What are some of those best ways that you've found to like learn Chinese in this respect without having been immersed in the language? So one thing I'm doing right now, which I personally love, some people find it a bit intensive, but I'm actually right now doing a transcription method. I'm not able to follow native level podcasts in Chinese right now. If I turn one on, I haven't tried actually for a few weeks, but you know, usually I'll get lost quite quickly. So this is not me being a super highly advanced learner. This is me as a sort of an intermediate listener. And what I'm doing is I've, I found a really nice podcast that is by a Taiwanese lady. So she's like speaking Mandarin, but her thing is, you know, she's speaking in a Taiwanese accent and using Taiwanese vocabulary. And it's an, a really ideal intermediate level. And what I'm doing is... I decided to transcribe an episode and sometimes people freak out and they say, oh, that sounds way too hard. In the beginning, it felt like I'm not going to be capable of doing this, but I was. It took a lot of time, but I actually went through, I transcribed a whole episode. It was like 10 minutes long, took about three or four sessions. There were some gaps. So there's some parts I just couldn't quite hear what she was saying. So I just put underscores. Sometimes I was pretty sure about the sound but not sure about the characters. So I just wrote the opinion, but almost the whole thing I had it. And then I wrote it on Journaly, uh, which is my platform where you can get Mm -hmm. corrections. And I posted a link to the original podcast episode. People corrected it for me. They gave me some really great notes. You know, they were like, oh, I see. This is a pretty typical word in Taiwan and Southern China. It's the same thing as this. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then what happened then is that now I have this beautiful transcript of natural language from a native speaker, full of great phrases, words, idioms, all these things. And it's about a topic I'm interested in. So now I can learn these words. I can practice these phrases. And then I can do all kinds of stuff. Like I can pretend that I'm on the podcast. I can pretend that I'm being interviewed about my habits and rituals. And then I can just try to use those same words that she used. I can try to use the same phrases and things, but I'll obviously be spontaneous. It's not scripted. And this is a wonderful way of, okay, I'm training my listening. Then what I'm doing is because the transcription is challenging, right? I'll listen to some things three, four, five times until I finally hear what she said. That's fine tuning my ears. That's fine tuning my ability to hear sounds in Chinese and parse them into language. The things I get wrong, I mean, corrected. So now even further, I'm fine-tuning my listening skills, all the while learning tons of vocab, tons of phrases, and then I flip it around and do output and practice speaking with those same things. In my opinion, it's an example of a very holistic method. 
It takes me through reading, listening, writing, because I'm transcribing, speaking. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting real, natural, authentic language from a native speaker. So when I then try to use that in my own speech, I can be fairly confident that I may not produce it as a native would, but I'm working with raw materials, if you will, that are correct. Wow, that sounds really interesting. There's so many different ways to learn a language and different methods. And I'm a big believer that all methods essentially can work. It's just others are more effective than others. But it right. sounds like this has been something that's been effective for you. Yeah, and I always try to say, right, like whenever I show any method, it's just one tool. I always try to say methods are just tools in a toolbox. And I think the most effective learners are able to have a toolbox. They don't just have one tool because the thing is, again, this particular method, it may not work all the time. I might be just exhausted one week. Maybe there's a whole month where I'm busy at work, whatever it might be. Or I may be a very beginner. Like this method I just described is not going to work for every situation all the time. It's a tool. So I have other tools that will work better if I'm a beginner or if I'm busy or if I don't have time or I want to focus very specifically on, let's say, speaking or very specifically on my reading skills. Well, I'm not going to do podcast transcription if my goal next week is specifically reading. Or like, for example, let's say automatic processing. So it's so important to realize that whenever I or, or someone else describes a method, in my view, that is a tool. Yeah. Some tools will not work for everybody. So that's part of the challenge is finding which tools work for you. Put those in your toolbox and if it doesn't work for you, then leave it out. But it's always important, in my opinion, to have that toolbox. And then the next part is understanding which tools are right for which jobs. Because just like tools, right, if you try to use a, a hammer for everything, it might get the job done, but it might be messy and you could have done it much more elegantly and quickly with a different tool. Robin, I also want to hear from you. Can you think of any breakthrough moments that you felt you had in Chinese? One, doing this transcription thing. I've documented the whole thing for everyone on my YouTube channel. And in the beginning, a lot of people were like, this seems way too hard, like too much work. And people were like, why don't you just find a transcript that's already done? You know, take the easy route. But once I got through, I'd say half of the transcript, and I started seeing the same things repeat, I noticed I was hearing things better. It was all coming together. I, and then once I got the corrections, once I started learning the words... I actually put them in Scritter. So what I did is I created a Scritter deck mm. containing all the words I learned. And then now I find myself, I can recall these things so easily and I can hear them so much more easily. And I can physically now, when I listen to another podcast, I feel like I'm 30% better than I was before I did that one transcription, right? So that's one thing. It was a real breakthrough because I think listening for me was a challenge with Mandarin Chinese, mm. where mm -hmm. even as I was starting to get better at speaking, I was still struggling a lot to listen and in particular to keep up. So language is coming in, I'm understanding it, but it's like I'm too slow. And so yeah. after a few seconds, I'm three <laughs> seconds behind and then now I just lose the thread. Yeah. Another one breakthrough moment, I think, was actually with graded readers. When I first started reading graded readers, it was very similar on a slower level. So I could read the characters, I knew the words, but I couldn't keep up. You know, when you're falling, you start to fall, but you're still up, but you're definitely going down. <laughs> you're not in control, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, and you might be able to kind of keep it going for five, 10 feet, but you're going to eventually fall. It felt like reading graded readers. In the beginning, I just fell immediately. I slowly was able to kind of keep myself up, but I was still kind of falling. And I remember at a certain point, maybe halfway through the first graded reader, which was Amma, mm -hmm. Emma from Mandarin Companion. I just remember I was like, I'm now able to finish entire paragraphs and still feel like I'm with it. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I can read a whole page now. And it just, that was a real breakthrough for me, just feeling like my processing power, I often compare it to like a computer because it's very similar in a lot of interesting deeper ways in terms of the anatomy of the brain and how different components work. But it feels like in the beginning, my brain is this really cheap computer with almost no RAM, not a lot of memory, not a lot of processing power. And it feels like... <laughs> 
as I get better, I'm adding better things to my computer, more RAM, more speed. And it was during my graded reader experience that I really felt like a turning point was reached with that. Wow. I can relate to that. I had a similar experience. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're like, hey, I I can do this. I can read. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's that point when you can get through stuff. To me, that's always a major turning point. And I think for anyone listening, if you've had this experience, you know it. And if you haven't yet, please keep going and look out for it. Because there's a point where everything, like if you try to speak, you just physically can't get through it. You're just going to get lost and that's fine. But you reach a point where all of a sudden, however badly, however inelegantly, you can now get through stuff. You can get Mm -hmm. through the conversation, even if you're doing a bit of pointing. And that's a real breakthrough, in my opinion, because it unlocks communication. If you have a patient enough person on the other side, you can now communicate in Chinese. And that makes all the difference, in my opinion, between that and when you're just like, I physically can't. I can't do this for more than 20 seconds. Communication. That's the purpose of language. And I guess when you can finally do it, wow. It's empowering. <laughs> yeah, and that's why the F, like you call it the F word, it's less relevant, right? Because at that point, are you fluent, so to speak? Well, probably not many people would say yes, you're probably not. But does it matter? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're communicating, then that opens up a lot of doors. Well, Robin, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start learning Chinese right now? And especially, like, they're not in China, they're not in a Chinese-speaking environment, but they want to learn. What advice would you give to someone in that position? I personally think that it's really good to settle into a few resources early on. I think one thing that I struggled with Mandarin was finding those things. Now I I have a textbook I really like. I have graded readers. I have a little app for studying. But it took some time to get there. And I think unless your native language is quite close to Mandarin Chinese, there are likely to be moments, again, where it feels like it's just not sticking. Right. And Mm. I think my advice in those situations is, first of all, just know it's normal and just know that in three months, it's probably going to (laughs) be it'll seem easy suddenly. So just never be afraid to like step back, learn it again, maybe find a different explanation from a different source. So, Robin, if you could go back and you could do something different when you started learning Chinese, what would you do differently? If I can flip the question, one thing I'm really glad that I did with Mandarin is that ultimately I still focused on relatively few resources, but I went quite deep on them. And I think a lot of times people have a tendency to just think that making progress means new stuff. So Mm. a lot of people think, okay, wherever I am now, making progress in Chinese means I got to read a new textbook. I got to read a new graded reader. I have to hear a new podcast, find a new app. And in my opinion, that's not accurate like i just spent like a month or two reviewing those older textbooks my chinese has gotten so much better even though i haven't seen a lot of new stuff and so that's one thing i'm always really pleased with is especially if you fall off a bit your language gets rusty it's so much easier to get back to it when you you're oh well i have these like three or four things i used i knew them really well i'll do them again i'll review it and it's going to come flying back If I had just been on a crazy freight train going through everything I could find, always focusing on having new stuff, I think it'd be a lot more daunting. And I don't think I would have that foundation that I do today. Words from a man who knows. (laughs) Robin, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? So primarily my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Robin McPherson. And then also, of course, if people are interested, I really recommend checking out Journaly if you want to practice writing in your Mandarin Chinese. It's a really vibrant community. Lots of native Chinese speakers who are really active giving feedback. And we'll put those in the show notes. Well, Robin, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your experience. This has been really insightful. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Appreciate you having me. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, landlord, photographer, sailor, telemarketer, doula, chef, and that one gal named Alice. You can subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. 
The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo at SubChina. And interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. And I'd like to thank our guest, Robin McPherson, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.